welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite podcast brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. My name is Carl Merrick and today I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah Coma, somebody who whose work I've taken a lot of personal interest in. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your work? Um, hi, hi, thanks, Carl. Oh, I'm Hannah. Um, I recently graduated with a PhD in 2020 from the University of Birmingham. And my research looks at the pre-Raphaelite legacy in modernism. <laughs> we can start off with a really good question then. Is the assumption that the Victorians and the modernists were very much divided a bit of a myth and if so how did it come about? I think it came about through the scholarship around the subject um, I mean the more traditional scholarship um, that sort of states that, that the pre-Raphaelites were sort of disregarded by the modernists um, and that in this idea of wanting to make it new, they've totally rejected the artistic and literary conventions or traditions of their Victorian predecessors or their pre-Raphaelite, the legacy that had handed down from the pre-Raphaelitism. Um, but I think that there is also some level that it might have been, it might have been a contribution from the modernists themselves and the fact that they, Sort of publicly repudiated pre-Raphaelitism, which at that period of time in the early 20th century, I think it was seen as something that was largely out of fashion to like the pre-Raphaelites or to, um, but they, in private, they do actually reveal an admiration for the pre-Raphaelites and their work and the legacy that they got from from them because a lot of these writers had grown up reading Victorian and pre-Raphaelite work. Um, I personally I don't think that's a legacy that's completely removed or a division. I think it's something that they take and evolve. And this idea of making it new is what the pre-Raphaelites were doing themselves with the myths and the legends. And I can see more of a of correlation between pre-Raphaelitism and modernism then I can like a division in that sense. Um, so they share a lot of the same processes in terms of making it new and rejecting what's gone before? Yeah I think I think to me that's something I found in my research is that particularly with things like with myths and legends I think they were making it relatable to their experiences at that time and their own experiences to modernity. And their processes are quite similar in the way that, for example, the modernists wrote manifestos explaining what they wanted to do with their particular movement. The pre-Raphaelites did that decades before. They were like, some of their um, processes and the way they um, wanted to change art, I think is, an example or a legacy that passes down into modernism. Um, so you've spoken about the sort of recourse to myth and mythology that both the modernists and the pre-Raphaelites used. Why do you think that is so powerful for both of the movements? 
Um, I think it's powerful because they use a past, like an ancient past, and make it present or contemporary, or as David Jones, one of the um, writers and artists that I look at in my thesis, he said that there's this idea of making it, um, bringing it into the now. And I think with that, there's this sense of a, with some of the writers and with the pre-Raphaelites, there's this sense of, they're looking back to the past to respond to their present, but it's also got this like utopian resonance to it because they're saying that this is like a sort of like a glorious past with like the beauty and the sort of values that they um, got from these myths and legends are brought to bear on their own experiences of modernity. And they, particularly someone like William Morris, um, who used medievalism and as an example of um, implementing those values into modern society. This is a sense of that there's like things that are lost um, that can be brought to bear onto um, their sort of contemporary world and how they experience it. You're talking about uh, William Morris and the idea of utopias. Does the arts and crafts movement sort of serve as a, a as a bridge, maybe, between the two movements? Do you think? Yeah, I, I do think that in a way because um, the three uh, the three writers that I looked at in my PhD were W. B. Yeats, G. H. Lawrence, and David Jones. And for me, that I picked those three because they were an example of three writers, three writers and artists who were inspired by arts and crafts themselves. Um, I mean, Yeats had grown up, um, his dad was an associate of the Pre-Raphaelites, John Butler Yeats, um, and he had a, he joined Morris's Socialist League in his 20s. Um, and he's, he writes in his autobiographies about all the arts and crafts around him, the war papers. And I think it really, he takes it in and it sort of has an impact upon his aesthetic taste. Um, and Lawrence shows a large interest in arts and crafts and Morris's ideas um, throughout his writings. And himself, he used to make his own furniture and um, make his own clothes. And there's this large idea of an arts and crafts someone who can do all of these different crafts and enjoys creating things. And, and with Jones, he was involved with, in his 20s, he was involved with the arts and crafts communities at Ditchlin and um, were, was a friend of Eric Gill's. And I think he was trained as a carpenter whilst he was there. And there's this sense in his work that he's fascinated by craftsmanship and building. Like, the Anastomata is full of references to shipbuilding and creation. And I think that in that in that way, just using those three as an example, I'm sure there, there, are, there are others, but um, you can see that real sort of fascination, like you said, that bridges, that the arts and crafts create a bridge to modernism. Could you tell us the story of Morris and the lamppost? Because I really enjoyed that when you came to do a talk. Mm for the Pre-Raphaelite Society. I found that very funny. So um, in his autobiographies that WB8 wrote, he um, talks about 
how well, he'd had his first collections of poetry published called The Wanderings of Rasheed. And he is, he really wants Morris to um, like to review them for him. And he wants to know what he thinks of them. And one day he, um, he talks about how he sent them to May Morris um, so that they'd meet her father's eyes apparently. And um, he, um, he bumps into Morris out and about in London. And apparently Morris was telling him how much he enjoyed his poetry, he said that they're my kind of poetry. And Yeats believed he would have said more if he hadn't have seen a cast iron lamppost and proceeded to get very angry about it. And according to Yeats, Morris got out his umbrella and started um, hitting this lamppost in his anger um, and frustration. But um, whilst it's quite a comic thing, I think it does show like what Yeats admired about Morris and his um, the sense of how passionate he was and how he stood for his the values that he had. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's it, it is a good story, but do you, do you get that sense of passion and that sense of dedication to beauty and craftsmanship with the modernists? It's quite interesting. Um, again, I I think you do, but I think they they have their own ideas about beauty, like each individual modernist has their own idea about beauty like the three that I mentioned um I think they're very much I see them as like romantic modernists so they're like very much connected to that legacy of pre-raphaelitism but I think other modernists and eras of that time had I mean movements artistic movements in that time um I think they had their own idea about what they wanted to respond to or to actually redefine ideas of beauty um like what is considered beautiful what is considered art um in a different way i'm thinking with the art nouveau that was very much about beauty natural forms curves and then with the cubist movement you have this sort of again like a challenge to that with more sharp edges and straight lines and i think it sort of evolves in different ways we, we spoke um, a little earlier about the visual representations of, of beauty and how they changed from the sort of uh, over the century from the pre-Raphaelite depictions into maybe a more modernist depiction. What, what do you think are some of the overlaps? Because there's, there is definitely a continuity in the depiction of, uh, particularly the female form, I can't quite put my finger on what that is. Could you help me out a bit? <laughs> um, in terms of, yeah, what we talked about earlier when we talked about the Art Nouveau, we were in a, um, the sort of, the Burne Jones influence with the way he portrays the female figure. It's very like, sort of elongated, um, there's this emphasis on flowing hair and dress which is quite similar to, I was thinking of artists like Alphonse Mucha. Um, but the, there was also, I think there's a sense of this fascination with the idea of metamorphosis and transformation. 
um, which comes through, particularly with Burne Jones's female mythic figures, the sort of the sense that they're either transforming from like physical transformation, sorry, or like a sense of transformation um, that's to do with artistic process as well, which I just got me thinking about his Pygmalion series. Um, again, that's a physical and transformation, but also I think says a lot about his idea of art um, in that way. Um, like how to create this sense of beauty physically on the canvas or in a particular medium. Do you think there's something in the distancing of particularly female figures of, as to how they are both beautiful, beautiful, beautiful <laughs> and practical? I quite like that. It's a nice hybrid word. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. Do you think there's, there's something in that? I, I'm, I'm thinking of... I'm thinking of Mooka. And I'm also thinking of maybe the, the, the more Art Deco artists like Lalique or Erte, where they, where they don't particularly serve a function apart from being beautiful for their own sake. Is there some sort of aesthetic distancing going on there? There can be a little bit, but there's this sense of... I'm just trying to think of, there was one critique, I think it was Elizabeth Collinford that talked about Rossetti's female figures as being sort of having this like sinister aspect. Like, I think there can be a distancing in that way. But I think what pre athletes in particular try and do with it is they try and reclaim female figures and portray them um, individually in their, own, in their own light. So I think there's a mixture of a distance in but also quite a presence as well um so how does that translate into poetics um so we've spoken about the recourse to myth and i really enjoyed your chapter on swinburne um sort of who, who i'm personally working with you spoke a lot about the proserpine and the persephone myth what what are some of the links between Swinburne's poetics and, say, D.H. Lawrence? I know who you discuss in the chapter. In the chapter, I refer to one of Lawrence's poems called Autumn Sunshine, which he wrote in 1914. And I think... With this particular poem, you can really see the um, the intertextual references to Swinburne. So he actually like uses imagery from Swinburne's poem or elements of his um, poetic. And I think with with the Persephone myth, um, I think Lawrence uses it in a similar way to Swinburne. Is in he's using it. He's using the figure. Of Persephone as a goddess to explore the sort of dualities that are present in the myth. So you have the, the pagan myth um, and its links to Christianity, which Swinburne is very rejection of the Christian doctrine of life after death. Um, and I think he uses that as a way to explore life and death and this sort of notion of rebirth um, that is comes through in the myth and in the Christian symbolism. Um, 
So in particular, there's references to wine, um, to grapes, to, to heaven. He also references Swinburne in Lady Chastity's Lover. Um, and there's three versions of Lady Chastity's Lover. Um, and in each one, there are different quotations from Swinburne. And they're said they are quoted by Constance Chatterley, the main character herself. And I think he uses that in a similar way to Swinburne's aesthetic in terms of he uses it as a way to talk about this notion of life and death. Um, but for Lawrence, I do think there's more, I would say that for Lawrence, there's more of an emphasis in Lady Chatterley's of on the life side of this sort of the power of life and the importance of life than death which Swinburne may sort of focus on a little more so but I think it's used as a way to explore the relationship between Constance Chatterley and Oliver Mellors or in the first two versions he's called Parkin um, so I think it becomes in that way a means of self-expression for the characters but I think Lawrence also uses Swinburne in terms of his own self-expression. Um, apparently he used to like to read Swinburne out loud in a sonorous voice. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was just thinking while you were talking, whether this becomes part of that myth-making process and has Lawrence taken that as a process from Swinburne in the sense that Swinburne was no stranger to scandal and being, um, you know, pulled from publication and being banned. And is, is there a sense of that snowballing effect whereby if you create, create a myth, you, it, be, it becomes a, a, a living myth, a, a thing? Does, does D.H. Lawrence contribute to that in any way? Do you think he's using that? using that but I think he does have a similar sort of idea of scandal attached to him like Swinburne does um which is quite I think with the sort of Lady Chatterley's trial and the way in the 60s and the way his work was received um particularly novels like The Rainbow which when it was first published in 1915 was burnt upon publication and when he did his own um art exhibition in 1929 a lot of the works received by the police. Um, I think he has this like air of scandal about him, which I still think in some ways is still attached to the figure of Lawrence. Um, so sometimes when you talk about Lawrence now, there is still this sort of connotation attached to him. Um, yeah, the sort of a reputation of like, which in some ways Swinburne, has still has a little bit, I think, like from his own, uh, in that way, I think, there's sort of this like, myth-making idea attached to it. Yeah, I, I do wonder um, whether, uh, particularly with Swinburne, and possibly for D.H. Lawrence as well, that this myth almost c comes before them, like you were saying, and this might be why Swinburne's actually quite understood it compared to his contemporaries. Do you think people might be almost a bit too scared to touch him. Yeah, I think in some ways, yeah, I think so. But I think there is more work being done about Swinburne 
um, like the in the chapter, the book you mentioned, Final Draft Like Poetics, of chapters which do explore Swinburne's work. Um, John Holmes's chapter in particular looks at Swinburne's poetry, and I think it's something that is growing in scholarship. And I hope, hopefully, it is because I think his poetry should be appreciated without not through for its own sake, not through any sort of like the scandal or the reputation, um, which is what I tried to do with Lawrence, really. Um, I found that studying Lawrence, there are many different ideas about him as a writer. <laughs> um, um, they can be quite conflicting as well, particularly is an example um, within feminist criticism. Yeah, it's trying to sort of look at their work rather than their behind them there's definitely an element of them being sort of great poets for for the, the sake of writing great great poetry as opposed to necessarily all the political and theoretical bolt-ons that have, that have come after it is this part of the the make it new is this a, a, a shared process for both the modernists and the pre-Raphaelites, this idea of making it new and just, is there a way you could always come back to it in the 60s, now, in 50 years to the future and be able to read something different into it and to bring another layer of political or theoretical context to it? I think so. I think the pre-Raphaelites and modernists, for me, the make it new is a large part of what, their similarities are. Um, and I think originally I came to, there was Elizabeth Pretchton's criticism about um, the pre-Raphaelites and proto-modernism and also Jerome McCann's um, book on Rossetti about arguing for Rossetti as a proto-modernist. And whilst that was influential to the work, I think to the research, I think there was more of an element of like the similarities in this idea of make it new, like the two movements were um, were responding to their own experiences, and they were doing something quite sort of radical in their own times. And I think that there is a lot more that can be done with it, um, and hopefully, it can be. Um, expanded upon or there'd be more elements I think there might be there far more things might come up than just the sort of myth side of it like we've mentioned and hopefully I think there's a lot of there's a lot of scholarship that at the minute that is interested in sort of bridging this Victorian modernist divide <laughs> be interesting to see where it goes I, I, I think you're right I think um it's nice to break down these sort of old assumptions in some ways and to look at continuities and I feel like that opens a lot more space for research a lot more space for investigation and a lot more space for conversations like this yeah it's um yeah it's fascinating like to look at sort of influences and inspirations and sort of legacy and how that is worked with over time We'll 
call it a day there. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank, thank you very you. much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's, um, it's been great to talk about all things pre-Raphaelite. <laughs> if you would like to find out some more information about the pre-Raphaelites and the pre-Raphaelite society, please visit our website at www.preraphaelitesociety.org and consider subscribing to our journal.